Welcome to the Ideas in Action podcast, brought to you by One World, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Chris Jackson, Editor-in-Chief at One World, where our mission is to publish voices and stories that give us new language to rethink the past, understand the present, and imagine new futures. From Ibram Kendi to Carla Cornejo Villavincencio, Tanahasi Coates to Alicia Garza, Kathy Park Hong to Brian Stevenson, and Kali Fajardo Anstein, our authors' work and their lives are dedicated to telling stories and exploring ideas that help us reframe our understanding of the most critical issues in our world and in ourselves. Join me and the One World team each week as we explore the challenges facing our society and share ideas and perspectives from our authors to help us truly see the world we're in and imagine the one to come. I'm here with my colleague, Nicole Camps, Senior Editor at One World. Hey, Nicole. Hey, CJ. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. So today we're talking about one of the core tensions in the life and history of the United States. Who counts as an American? Who gets to participate in our democracy and benefit from our public goods? The first words in the American Constitution are we the people, but who gets to claim that identity? In a country built on racial hierarchies and the myth of rugged individualism, is it possible to create a pluralistic American community? These are questions that have riven our country from the start, sparking our definitive movements from abolition to the Black Lives Matter movement and triggering a catastrophic civil war. These are questions that animate our present crises in this country, too. And at the heart of the questions, as is so often the case when it comes to America's chronic dilemmas, is race. To explore these questions, we turn to two pairs of One World authors for their expert perspectives. First, we spoke with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, author of What the Eyes Don't See about the Flint, Michigan water crisis, and Ibram Kendi, the best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. And then we talked with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Will Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, and ta Coates, author of Between the World and Me, We Were Eight Years in Power, and the novel The Water Dancer. Together, they shared their perspectives on the question of American belonging in the past, our current struggles as we battle the pandemic and political polarization and violent extremism, and where we can go from here to finally create a functioning and inclusive idea of an American public. Let's start with some words from Dr. Mona and Dr. Kendi about America's racist legacy and its focus on the individual over the community. Here's what they have to say. Um, we've never been a nation of we. We have very much been a nation of I, and the I has always been the white male privileged population. If you look at our policies, especially when it comes to children, we're, 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 you know, we, we continuously are at war with certain populations. And rather than use science and evidence to put into place what is best for certain populations, we, we are always on the defense. Uh, there's constant threats to, for example, safety net programs like Medicaid and CHIP and, um, you know, and strengthened environmental and public health regulations. Uh, so we, we don't do a good job taking care of each other. Uh, and throughout history, we haven't done a good job taking care of each other. Uh, and we, we tend to put others down so that we can succeed. I think for the individual, we've been taught that if we're not exercising or striving for our individual freedom, then essentially we're subjective. I don't think we realize individuals gain freedom when the community gains freedom. That's when enslaved people realized. I was not free because my community was not free. So I have to fight for the freedom of my community in order so I can get that freedom. And, and so, so many Americans are fighting for their own individual freedom while not realizing that by only fighting for their individual freedom, they are keeping the community subjected and they are a member of that very community. So, Chris, why do you think we can't let go of our own egos? You know, we can't let go of the emphasis on ourselves like Dr. Mona and Ibram were talking about. 
Well, I think it's an interesting question. I think it's, it's um, you know, we, we're going to hear a little bit from Heather McGee later on. And it's the thing that kind of is like at the center of a lot of her research as well. And, you know, all of these authors actually in their own ways have kind of tried to go back to figure out that the answer to that question. And a lot of it is rooted in the American founding and what the sort of principles of the country was founded on. And Heather would argue, and, and we'll hear from her in a moment, like that it's really about a country that was founded on slavery and on settler occupation. And when you're founded on those kinds of principles, you, you do start to think about things in a zero-sum way so that you think to get what we need in this country, this population that came from Europe, to get what they needed in this country, they had to take something from someone else rather than share something with someone else. Slavery is taking something, taking people's labor. The occupation of the land often involves taking people's land and in both cases, trying to you know, dehumanize, eliminate, marginalize, you know, remove citizenship from the people that you were taking from. And so there's a mindset in this country that I think was established at its very beginning. And it goes to that whole question of who was we the people in 1776? Well, it was actually a pretty narrow group of people. And that narrow group of people had achieved a country by taking from other people. And so it creates a more tribal or individualistic way of thinking about everything. Yeah, you know, Ibram has this uh, point that I've heard him say, which is that freedom of the slaveholder is the freedom to infect. And the freedom of the enslaved person is the freedom from harm. Um, and I think about that a lot because I think, you know, all, all the authors featured on today's episode, and I, and I think in some way, maybe all the authors we work with at One World are seeking or writing to gain a better understanding of liberation. I mean, I think that's, you know, the work of storytelling and to some extent is how, what is liberation for all and how do we gain that? So I, you know, I find this point just really interesting to focus on the individual versus the focus on the, the community because you know the fact that that's even a question for so many people, you know, it that that's not a question. You know, so many communities are founded on and led by the idea of community first, not individual first. And I think it's a really good point. I mean, I think you know one of our colleagues, Elizabeth Mendesberry, makes the point over and over and over again that a lot of these sort of ideas we have about what this country is are built on stories. And there's rather than on necessarily even realities. Um, and there is a story about the American individualist, I think, has really taken hold as one of our kind of core mythologies, that it's like the individual who like conquered the West and who tamed the wilderness. And, um, and we have this idea that it took single men, essentially, who were able to do this kind of work, not working necessarily in the form of a varied community. At the same time, there are other stories in our history that we could also look to that really are entirely about community and, and point to the fact that none of this country would have even happened without there being multiple contributions from every strata, every, you know, gender, race, every class position, like all came together to construct the best parts of this country. So really it is, about, in some ways, it's a question of what are the stories that we want to tell about ourselves? Because the, the history is there. But what is this, what story do we want to craft from it? And I think for too long, we've crafted a story about the individual rather than about what's been created through communal work. And, you know, Dr. Mona's story is such a good example of an entire community coming together. I mean, it's about scientists, it's about organizers, politicians, residents of Flint to confront an entire government. But that's not the story that was highlighted. And historically, that's never the story that's been told. So I'm curious, you know, what's the obstacle behind that? Why are these stories about community resilience not the ones that are highlighted. And it's always the stories about 
specific individuals. Yeah, I think this next clip from ta Coates and Heather McGee will give us some answers to that. Well, let me just start with, 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 with a pretty, you know, um, flat out statement. We, we don't in this country regard black people as human beings, okay? And you can see it in how the conversation is taking place right now around, around coronavirus, okay? Um, I have heard countless numbers of people say, um, sometimes black, in fact, very often black, that part of, if not the whole reason why this is hitting us the hardest is because of our, our habits. We are not social distancing. We don't eat the right foods. We are doing all, all of these little individual things. It, it has been fascinating me to, to me to, to hear this, or, or when I see pictures, for instance, right here in New York City, of white people at the farmer's market, so out in Prospect Park. Now, people express you know, rage and, and they're upset with that. That's not what I'm saying. But when you have people literally dying you know, in the black community, those who have the least and the expression that it is somehow their fault, um, that, that's a piece of a very, very old dialogue and an old way of thinking about black people wherein you make uh, systemic white failure, you know, as I was saying in an Instagram post, into somehow individual black failure. The very fact that you only speak about black people or only speak about other people who are not white in that particular way, I think, you know, again, it's a conversation about who you regard as human and who you don't. Now, where do we get those ideas from? And I would argue that, again, you know, in the politics that happens before you even get into a ballot box, before you even get to a policy, there is a conversation that has historically been happening and continues to happen in the art uh, and in the culture of this country. Gone with the Wind is a, is a work of great politics and a, and a work of great political import. Birth of a Nation led to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. These ideas about who is human and who is not have been repeatedly drummed into folks' head. And so you, you, you end up in a situation where, you know, you think you're in an intellectual uh, debate or intellectual conversation, but because the culture has already asserted to you over and over again that you are less than, that you are not human, the conversation is already skewed. You, you, you can't have a, a conversation on logic and facts when somebody already, you know, regards somebody else as human. And, and so to, to the extent that, you know, um, Obviously, I, I like writing fiction. You know, I enjoy it very much. But also, you know, view it as, as, a, as a logical extension of, of, of my politics. And that is to, you know, render uh, uh, Black people as human beings, you know, um, um, render their, their, their history, their culture, their struggle as, you know, uh, equal, as, as, as humans, and as, as worthy of the same, you know, respect and belong on the same level of, of conversation. Um, so that we don't have situations where people are, are, are quite literally, you know, falling down and dying in the streets and we're having, you know, some conversation about Pop Pop and, 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 and you know, a, a Big Mama. Heather, you know, you've also talked a lot about how we can kind of see our way through this and how it is a complex thing. It's not simple enough to have like policy solutions if you don't, in some ways, you know, there's almost like a spiritual or cultural kind of dimension to, I think, the work that we have to do as a country. So for, you know, almost 20 years, I was working in public policy in trying to rewrite the laws and successfully, in many cases, rewriting the laws around our democracy and our economy, whether it was financial reform, credit card debt, bankruptcy, um, voting rights laws, campaign finance laws, um, because, you know, in my heart, I'm a wonk. I want to change the rules that dole out power in our society and put more of them in the favor of more people. 
And I became the president of a think tank when I was 33 years old. And it was, um, you know, in many ways, like the, the biggest, best job I could have in that world. And after about half a decade there um, at Demos, at the helm, it, I kept running up against the fact that we are not healed that we can continue to write different laws, but laws at their core are just expressions of beliefs. And when you change the laws to say that we can sit by side by side and learn side by side and drink from the same fountains and enter the same doors, if you haven't changed the esteem with which the white majority holds us, you will find mountains being moved in order to continue that separation. And, and that's what we have, right? We are as segregated in our, in our school system as we were before Brown. I'm a deep believer in the power of, of the dream and the power of the dreamers and the power of fiction and in fact, speculative fiction. My mother, who taught me everything I know, she saw Black Panther in the theater like four or five times. And um, <laughs> she came out and she said, well, now I know how white people feel. Because I spent just two and a half hours seeing <laughs> myself and us as the heroes, and I think I can conquer the world. So I think it's extremely important. And I also think that politics matter. And I think the storytelling, I think we have so much that we can learn about this moment, um, particularly because someone who is a, a, a worker of fiction which is Donald Trump, right? The fiction of his own wealth, the fiction of his piousness, the fiction of his intelligence, the fiction of his business acumen. He is a reality star, a marketer, someone who slaps his name on things. He knows about the dreamers and the dream. That's actually that sort of cotton candy economy is what he has always actually trafficked in. And so we have to recognize that that politics is also about storytelling. And the most powerful force in our politics has always been and still is this question of who we think we are and who we project um, that, that sense of identity onto in terms of our political leaders. There's so many spaces in between politics, policy, and culture um, that, that we, we have to occupy them all if we're gonna make change. So it's interesting that they both talk a lot about the importance of stories, but also the importance of policy and politics. And you know, you made that great point earlier, Nicole, just about how our stories are all about liberation. And you know, what do you think the connection is between the stories we tell and the politics and policies that we enact? I think there's there's a few things that I um, am thinking about. And one is that the stories we tell have to be heard and have to be believed and have to be championed. And it's interesting that, you know, ta talks about Gone with the Wind and that Heather talks about Black Panther. And I, you know, I think a lot about what stories we teach in, in our public schools. I mean, you know, one of our authors, Nicole Hannah-Jones, talks about this a lot. I think it's really interesting, this idea about how the stories we tell relate to our politics. Um, and when people talk to the people who are on the ground at these at these events, these protests and riots, um, a lot of what you hear is people describing themselves as if they're in some kind of movie, as if they're like seizing the, you know, the pitchfork and charging the center of power, as if they're the hero in some narrative struggle. And it's so important, I think, that we figure out how do we tell stories that are not about a white man taking power violently? What is another narrative we can tell? And I think that's why Heather is so moving when she talks about how Black, what Black Panther meant 
to her. Um, Ta-Nehisi talking about his novel and why he why he moved into fiction because there's a lot you can do in terms of describing politics and describing culture, but with fiction you get to imagine something. And I think that's what so many of us need is an imaginary landscape where we can find ourselves and we can find ourselves in a heroic story, but the heroic story being one that's about a group of people, a community, about people trying to create something that is better and more equitable and doing it in ways that don't involve acts of extreme violence, but a liberation that happens both internally and communally is the thing that precedes a politics that makes that imaginary landscape come into being. And I think that's sort of the connection between those two that is so, so important. I think particularly now where I think it's so clear that people need to find meaning in their politics. And that meaning comes from the stories that we tell ourselves about the world that we want. And right now there's a very toxic story that, you know, has really metastasized in this country. And I think we need to have a counter narrative that allows people to see a different kind of story. The truth is that we do. We do have this counter narrative and that that is what, you know, enrages people. I mean, I think it's so fascinating to call the coup that happened a protest. And I think, you know, the way that we think about you know, Colin Kaepernick, you know, the way that we think about his peaceful protest and, you know, what he stood for and even the way he approached it, you know, I think it enrages people that there is this other hero or heroine that that we have to follow, you know, that there are these stories like Black Panther that, you know, make us want to stand up at the end of that movie crying, like clapping, or at least that's exactly what me and everyone else in the Brooklyn theater I saw it in were doing. And I, I think it's not that we don't have these stories, but I think the truth is actually that they really are being, you know, celebrated and being produced in these mass ways now where, you know, to some extent before we were still quote unquote on the margins, you know, and I, I find it really interesting that as our stories are being celebrated, the emboldened attitudes of you know, folks that feel like that's going to take away some of their power. I mean, I think that goes back to the first clip that we listened to, you know, about community versus individual freedom. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, Brian Stevenson, one of our other authors, you know, talks a lot about like how important it is to win what he calls the narrative war. And I've always th thought of that as being like a kind of animating force in the work that we do as a publisher. It's like, how do we like win the narrative war? You think about a story like the one that Dr. Mona tells in her book about the Flint water crisis. And Dr. Mona, of course, was the whistleblower who was at the center of it. And a lot of people wanted to elevate her as being like, the one voice who could talk about the Flint water crisis. And she insisted always, and certainly it's true in her book, that it was a communal act. And that's what she wanted to do was raise up all the different voices and not just the voices of the people in the community, but the voices of the legacies that kind of brought her to that point. The governor of Michigan might be charged with criminal charges because of what happened in Flint. And it's almost entire that story was brought to national and international attention by people like Dr. Mona who would not let it go, but who also wanted to tell it as a narrative that people could find themselves in. And then it could become something that we could act on politically. And here we are now, like a few years later, possibly on the cusp of getting real justice for that uh, miscarriage of, of public duty on the part of the governor of Michigan. So you're right, I think these stories are out there and I think these stories can be effective. And I think they're not just in terms of changing the larger narrative of the country slowly, but in terms of uh, motivating political action. And it's important that, you know, I guess we stay engaged in that work.
Let's hear from Dr. Kendi and Dr. Mona about how we create an idea of the public that includes everyone, that doesn't demonize individuals, but puts the emphasis back on our systems. I'd like for us to first and foremost recognize the problem. For any of us who've been taught that, that the problem, the reason why, for instance, certain racial groups are being more likely to be infected or even killed or even more likely to be unemployed or be more likely uh, to be suffering from food or housing insecurity is not because there's something wrong with them. And if we believe that there's something wrong with those, those racial groups, we're actually believing in racist ideas. And, and for us to recognize that there's no such thing as a not racist idea, that we either believe that there's something wrong with particular racial groups, or we recognize the racial groups as equals, and then we, we recognize that if, that if a particular racial group is dying at higher rates, it must be because there's something going on in their society. And so then, and we recognize those as anti-racist ideas. And, and then we start to figure out, okay, what is actually causing, what caused the, the health disparities that persisted even before this, this pandemic? And then what caused the racial pandemic within the larger viral pandemic? What policies? Could we have changed? What policies do we need to change to create equity and, and, and justice? And I just want us to come out of this pandemic razor focused on transforming seeing power rather than people. I did all that, you know, as a as a pediatrician, um, but also with a health policy background. I spent a lot of my time one on one with patients. You know, I have very much celebrated kind of the grit and the resilience of our patients who, despite all these obstacles over the last few decades, been able to overcome and persevere and and be so resilient in the face of so much adversity. And I think what's really shaped my view of where we need to go is that we need to once again take a step back to realize why are we putting some children and some populations in conditions that demand such overwhelming adversity and demand such overwhelming resilience and on the on the shoulders of small children uh, where you know families have struggles you know putting a meal on the table and are living with all of these toxicities of life um, and, and now this pandemic so we need to stop once again celebrating those small percentage of children that are able to rise up from those situations. And we need to stop focusing on those individuals and really take a step back and, and open our eyes to why, why these injustices are there in the first place. So we all have to be students of history. Um, and then, you know, if we can't look back, we, we, there's no way we can figure out where we are and, and it's impossible for us to then move forward. Um, and in Flint, you know, our water crisis didn't happen overnight. It was, it was because of decades of greed and capitalism and racism and disinvestment and population loss and white flight. And the list goes on and on and on. And this is similar to many of our communities. Um, so like you said, we, we have to open our eyes to that, that past, that history, to, to realize where we are, and most importantly, to move forward. And it can no longer be on, on the shoulders of our most disadvantaged populations. We, we have to put in place the policies that demand equity. Um, they need added resources. They need a form of reparations. Um, we cannot just expect recovery uh, when there have been so many longstanding historic injustices placed on communities. I think many of us at times fall into the trap of thinking about changing the individual versus the forces that govern us. And, you know, I, I think myself, I fall into this trap sometimes. And I'm just curious, you know, 
why do you think that is? Why do you think that we, you know, as much as we can put the emphasis on our, our governments and the policies that are put in place to govern us, why does it always come back to ourselves? That's a really good question. And I think both of these authors have really addressed it in interesting ways in their in their work. So what Dr. Kendi says is that, you know, we are in a lot of ways, in, you know, sort of locked into seeing what we is right in front of our faces without looking at the larger systems behind it. And that's because there's a kind of human nature to some degree is to like see the things in front of your face and place it into an existing narrative that's already in your head. And we have all these existing narratives so that if you see unemployed black man, you don't think, oh my God, there's something wrong with our system of employment. There's something wrong with our economy. There's something wrong with our education system. There needs to be like some kind of assistance given to this person so that they can survive. We think there goes someone who's lazy. It goes straight to an existing narrative. And so we blame the individual. And rather than being able to see these sort of radiating systems that are behind every individual. Um, and that's particularly the case when it comes to race, because we have so many racial narratives that put all of the blame on the individual because we refuse to look at the larger systems that have placed the individual in that position because those are systems that are built around our history of, of racism and white supremacy in this country. And I think that Dr. Mona in her work, I think answers in, a, in another way, which is that the systems are, you know, it goes right to the title of her book, what the eyes don't see. We don't see the systems, you know, mm -hmm. we see the individuals. And rather than trying to you know, dig down deep and see what's going on with larger systems, we, we again, blame the individuals. Flint is a great example. You think about what happens with lead. Lead is a neurotoxin. It affects people in so many different ways in terms of how they're able to learn. It affects them behaviorally. It affects them in, in all these ways that at the moment when their brains are developing and most sensitive to the kind of effects these toxins have. But if you don't look at the system, if you don't look at the water, you don't look at the pipes, you don't look at decisions about taxation that lead to decisions about who has the money to get like the better water system to get the more efficient pipes, if you don't look at disenfranchisement that leads to having Republican governor who believes in austerity, who therefore believes that the water system needs to change to save money. If you don't look at the larger and larger and larger radiating systems that kind of create a situation, you just see a kid and you're like, why isn't that kid learning fast enough? Why does that kid have some kind of developmental delay? It must be the child's fault. But if you actually pull back, you see that the systems are the, are the problem. And the fact that this child was not able to engage in our public benefits in the same way as a child one zip code over, and we blame the child. And I think that's another reason why these stories have to be told and put the individual in a context of a system. Um, and I think the other thing is that we hate to feel powerless. And I think that the narrative of the individual empowers us in certain ways to think that, well, I am the master of my fate. You know, I am the only one who drives my destiny. And the truth is, that's not the case, <laughs> you know, and it's never been the case. Like, obviously, we make the decisions in our own lives that, you know, allow us to have the most integrity and to feel like we're living according to the way, or at least we're making decisions according to our beliefs and principles. But the way that plays out depends almost entirely on the systems that we're making those decisions in. And the communities that, you know, in a lot of cases are the ones that buoy us, you know, that push us forward, that elevate us, it's other people. And it, in some ways that might feel disempowering to think, oh my God, I'm just like within these larger systems or my, my success I owe to these larger communities. But in fact, it's a true story and, it's, and it empowers us because it, it allows us to see the things that are actually able to engineer our successes and failures and to like link arms 
with each other so that we can all elevate together. So what do you think, though, about that question, about this kind of difficulty of seeing ourselves outside of ourselves? I think that there are things that are set up in our lives that make it hard to think outside of ourselves. You know, if you are someone who is trying desperately to pay off your student loans while also feeding and caring for uh, your children and also trying to uh, organize on the side, you know, after hours, after your nine to five jobs, it, it, it it's very hard, I think, sometimes to think outside of ourselves because we are put in these situations, these, you know, deeply unfair situations where all the labor is put on us. You know, I think if we look at the model of unions, I think if we look at the models of, you know, laborers' rights, you know, what are our rights as as citizens and, and how do we actually enforce those rights? And, you know, I think I would argue that, you know, we're seeing so many folks engage in politics in record numbers. And, you know, it, it possibly because it's 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 become a trend. And but I also think it's because a lot of people are exhausted. They're exhausted with not having the same rights of all men. They're exhausted by, you know, the way in which people in power talk about us as citizens. They they're exhausted by what they're given and what they're not given. I mean, I'm exhausted, you know, and I think sometimes when we get down to that that level of exhaustion, the only thing that we can do is start fighting back. What that means in, in that term of start fighting back is asking what what does our whole community need and how can I get that for the whole community? Because, you know, I'm not going to just get it for myself. This is not just an individual problem. You know, this is a systematic problem. And I think sometimes we don't see that until we're so exhausted. You know, I think racism can kill you. You know, I think we're talking about how racism affects us mentally and how it affects us, you know, systematically and what we're offered. But I think it also affects us deeply within our bodies. There's a lot of emphasis on, you know, these these kind of self-care routines. But what I think we're really trying to make the emphasis on is not allowing these old uh, racist supremacist ideas to keep destroying our bodies. And I think Ibram Kendi talks really beautifully about that. First and foremost, it's my hope is philosophical in that I recognize that you can't bring about change if you don't believe change is possible. Cynicism is, is, is the kryptonite of change. And we have a lot of people who, who imagine themselves as activists but who are the most cynical people. And, and that is in deep contradiction. And so I recognize that we have to have hope because that's really what fuels uh, you know, our incredibly difficult efforts to, to change, to transform this country. You know, not to give away the end of, of how to be an anti-racist. You know, I'm, I'm someone who was diagnosed with, with stage four colon cancer, a diagnosis that 88% of people typically die within five years. And, and I talked about in, at the end of the book how in many ways the United States has, has stage four cancer. And that cancer is racist, literally spread to, to every part of the body politic. And, and so right now the, we have a question. So do we just sit around and just let the nation die? Because the odds are completely against us. The, Racism has been here from the origins of this country. It's spread to every part of the body politic. Or do we decide to fight? Do we fight against all odds and, and imagine that, you know what, there's a possibility that we can still survive, that we can still outlive 
this, this racism, I don't see any other option than fighting against all the odds. Because if we don't fight, then we're guaranteed to die. Thank you for listening to the Ideas in Action podcast by One World. For more information on the authors and books discussed in this episode, please follow at One World Books on Instagram or visit OneWorldLit.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. This podcast has been produced by Pat Stengo and Stephanie Bowen and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I'm Chris Jackson, and until next time, this is Ideas in Action. <laughs>